Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Missions podcast, where we learn from the stories and lessons of cross-cultural servants to the unreached people groups of the world. Welcome to today's episode. Here's your host, Jeremy Wardlaw. So today we have Lisa Kepler, also known as Discourse Queen. <laughs> is, that, is that not a name you yeah, want? That, that's been coined recently. Oh, okay. <laughs> What's a, a better name? Uh, Just DQ. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll go with that one. <laughs> that might be trademarked. So. <laughs> Anyways, Lisa has worked for 17 years in PNG, Papua New Guinea. Um, 16 of those, no, sorry, 18 years in PNG and 17 among the Uriai. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uriai people. So they live in a jungle. There's, from what I understand, there's three main villages on a river in the middle of nowhere. Yes. <laughs> well, one is on, on the river and two are more interior. So they're not actually close to a river. You'd leave our, the village by the river and hike about four hours and get to the second village. And then it would be yet another four to five hours from there to get to the third village. Wow. So really remote, and obviously that's part of the reason why they're unreached, because they live isolated, but they have their own language. Is there something distinctive? Is their language related to the languages around it, or is it... No, there's probably four languages that we could walk to around us, but their language is a complete isolate, so they don't share even two words that are similar and we have people in the village that don't speak the national language at all, and they don't speak enough of those other languages. They might be able to say man, woman, dog, beetle nut, tobacco, like the important things, right? They might be able to say food in one of those other languages, but they certainly would not understand the truths of Scripture mm. through any of those other means of communication. If they didn't hear it in their language, it wouldn't wouldn't be clear it wouldn't be understood and they certainly would not be applying it to their lives so that's the need right kind of right in your face yes they live in the middle of nowhere in a language group that's totally unrelated to all those languages around exactly so how when you first moved in there now that's 17 years ago is that right yes 2000 we were planning to move that move in in 2003 and ran into a land dispute so even before we could move in, we had to deal with a different language group that was trying to say that the ground the UDI were living on at that point was their ground. So it was disputed, and really they were looking for, for us to pay them mm. for that, and we knew long-term that ends up creating more problems. So I had to work through the land dispute to where that other group was willing to set aside any right they felt they had to the ground. So we started house building and moved in in 2004 okay so it starts off with drama right, right. from the get-go <laughs> yes <laughs> just like it should right exactly good story exactly and I, I mean honestly you think about taking truth and taking light to the dark places the enemy is going to do whatever he can to try mm. and keep that from happening so kind of the fact that you're starting out with drama you're starting out with obstacles it, seems like that would indicate that you're headed in the right direction, actually. Mm. And this is perhaps a place that needs light and truth. And we definitely found that to be the case as we moved in. That's a unique perspective, that there's tension and conflict, mm -hmm. and you're thinking, actually, we might be onto something. <laughs> yes, and, and that is that reality, right, of there is a spiritual battle going on mm. that we often don't even think about, but... God has said that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation around the throne. He's already given us the the preview of where we're headed, mm -hmm. right? He's told us this will be true, and now we have the privilege and opportunity to be a part of seeing that come true. And I mean, what an incredible privilege that he says, okay, I can use you, weak little human beings, to take my gospel and proclaim it to those that live in darkness, that apart from you going, have no access to the truth. Hmm. And yet in that, knowing that there's a battle because the enemy has held those grounds 
and he doesn't want truth coming in. He does. He's trying to hold the light out, but he can't. Mm. And so, are you willing to trust the Lord to be big enough to fight even that small battle of a land dispute mm. and get you in there and get you started? And there's, you know, another one of those. I don't know what lesson you would be on by that point, but there's another lesson of seeing God's faithfulness, of seeing Him be more powerful and more than sufficient for whatever is before you to see this church planted in the middle of the jungle. So it starts off with that challenge. And then, I mean, what's the, what, what are, what's the language sound like? I mean, I imagine that's the next thing we got to learn how to communicate. Yes. <laughs> Can you give me some, a practical expression oh. or a phrase? Yeah, one thing we would say very often, and whenever I go back into the village again, one of the first things that we often say to each other is, And I'm saying, I'm really happy to see you, is what the English would be in that. Can you say it again? Sorry, I Sorry, excuse me. I keep saying, getting ahead of myself. Mo abba abba mom. Mo abba abba mom. Close. Abba abba. <laughs> get get ah. your ah, your diagram in there. Mo abba abba mom. Ati waimanima. I'm gonna leave the end to you. <laughs> and it's literally, you know, I and that abba abba mom would be happy or pleased, and then ati is you. And why manima would be to see you. Okay. So, so you're you're hearing that off the right off the bat and you're Right. And it sounds a lot like gibberish when you first walk in because I can't I don't know any I I understand the sounds, they're not that dissimilar to English. So that's one thing in, in the UDI language. You you could say all of the sounds easily. But in the way they put them together and their words don't sound anything like English. And so you get there and immediately it's, I have no idea what they're saying. They could be talking about what they're having for dinner and I'm it. Or they could be talking about, you know, the fish they saw jump in the water and I'd have no idea what they were talking right. about at that point. So yeah. how long did it take you and you, did you move in there with the team? I did. Moved in with two married couples and another single lady and myself. So it was two marrieds and two singles. Each couple, one couple had two daughters and the other couple had just one child at the time and then later had a second one. So we moved in this big team of six adults that are planning to learn language and culture. Not only how do the people speak, but how do they think? What's their worldview? How do they view everyday life and material objects and life and death and all of those things? So we moved in all together. Of course, you got to build a house before you can... I mean, we could have lived in houses like they do, but then you spend all of your life existing. It's been, it takes so much more time to live in the middle of the jungle. We have solar panels and batteries that run power, but you're more careful in the power that you use. And then, too, just the reality of how long it takes to make dinner or to wash clothes or to wash dishes, all those things. If I were to live just exactly the same way they did, first, I wouldn't have any power for my computer in order to translate the Bible eventually, right? And then also I would spend so much time just trying to exist that I'd have no time really for language and culture study, much less teaching literacy or translating the Bible or discipleship. So you build a house that can last for the time you're in there with that can have power in order to run some of those things and still trying to live as simply as possible but with some things that make your life doable so that you can spend eight hours a day in translation or 10 hours in language study and have these you know little things that can help you do just the the existence side in a much more efficient form Right. Your goal isn't to exist. It's right. to plant a church. <laughs> exactly. Your home church was like, Lisa, I'm sending you out yes. there to exist. Right. Uh, not it, really, right? Yeah. If you, if you get a little bit of sharing the gospel in, in between just living in the middle of the jungle when that's not what you're used to, then that's we're cool with that. No, it's we're sending you to share the gospel and to see, to 
translate the Bible because they don't have one right. in their language. And so do take what you need to make that possible. So you guys get set up as a team with homes that you can actually learn language and mm-hmm. culture and, and actually do ministry. Um, and then you're, you're really into language learning. So how yes. long does that take <laughs> oh. for you guys or for you, I guess? Yeah. I mean, it, it, you kind of step into it and you're looking at this mountain of language when, again, you know, even if I'm hearing the first time I heard Moab, Abba, Mom, I have no idea what that means. And so it, it's starting out that you're learning nouns and things you can point to and concrete objects and that sort of thing. So it ended up taking me about two years to learn the language. And <clears throat> I mean, I'm a... I'm a decent language learner. Decent. That sounds. <laughs> I, I mean, that's an, fair. And you know, it's a understatement. Maybe um, two years seems pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of that is I feel like the, the training that we had mm-hmm. within the organization, the consultants that were there to help you, the program of focusing on trying to learn rank language around culture so that you're spending time with the people and then whatever event we did today, there's where my, the source of my language. And so then it's real life stuff that you're doing Mm -hmm. and you can use a lot of those things every day. So it cements it and you're holding on to it much longer. Mm -hmm. So I think there were a lot of factors in that. And then to just, you can't remove how the Lord enables you to hold on to things and understand things. And, you know, some of those days when you thought I will never get this, or I've been working really hard on a certain phrase or trying this new verb pattern or something. And then somehow a couple of days later without realizing somehow it's clicked and you could only look back and see that the Lord's enabled your brain to move beyond trying to understand even what it means, but to actually using it. So a couple of years later, was done with official language and culture learning. I mean, I would say I'm still learning, mm. right? And just you continue to grow and just understanding. Even sometimes I think I still don't always understand their humor, but not because I don't understand the language, but I still don't and don't understand why that's funny. <laughs> and they say that's one of the last things you learn. And yet here all these years later, there's just certain places where they'll be laughing hysterically and I don't see the humor in that at all (laughs) why is that funny yeah cultural differences I tell you fits in there so anyway two years later was done with cultural language learning Uh, my co-workers were still in language and culture study in the meantime at that place one of the married couples that started with us had had to leave so they basically went back to the States on a furlough home assignment and didn't return to the work. Mm-hmm. And so it was one married couple and the two, us two singles. And um, that was a shift and change, mm-hmm. right? These are your coworkers become far more like family. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just the guy that works in the cubicle down the hall. These are people that their kids have become like nieces and nephews to you. You are Aunt Lisa. You are you know, fitting into their world and everything you're doing because there's a common goal, common purpose, and you're living on a piece of ground that's not half a mile long or much less that wide. And so you're kind of in each other's world all the time. And because you're working together and trying to learn language together and help each other and things like that, it's it's a much closer mm-hmm. working environment than it would be if I was sitting in Florida and just working with people at the office sort right. of thing. Cause you really need each other. And you're, yes. You're, you're very just, interdependent yeah. and, uh, that's great to work as a team, but it does mean as people leave that it's, it's a little bit more heartbreaking than just the guy at the cubicle, you know, three cubicles down decided to move to a different company. Mm. So they left and it was just the four of us continuing on in culture and language learning. And then I, finished up with my culture and language learning and the the guy was still in culture and language learning like his wife as well and then the other single but he was about a year behind me in getting done with culture and language learning and in the meantime in that process another couple joined the work uh, we interact with them they had three kids and they joined the work but 
If you live in the middle of the jungle, you have, in our area, it's hot, swampy, lots of mosquitoes. Malaria is is prevalent there. Mm. There's another mosquito-borne illness called dengue fever that was there. And the wife got dengue fever. And what we didn't know until much later was that it actually shut down her pituitary gland. Okay. So they were there for about three months. And then for medical reasons, they had to leave and Mm. were never able to return to the work. Mm. So we're back to one married couple and two singles again. And although they were only there for a few months, we had... Yeah, already had become very close, and so that was another hard one, especially when you knew their heart was really to be there, and mm. there was no physical way for them to stay. Right. So we all kept kept going. As When I finished culture and language study, we looked at, as a team, what made the most sense, and so I started into Bible translation and waited for my coworkers to, or we thought more of my coworkers would be done, and then we would start into literacy preparation and then starting a literacy class. So we felt like it would be good if I could get ahead of the teacher in Bible translation so that when he was ready to start writing lessons, the material would be ready mm-hmm. and he could start writing those lessons to begin the gospel presentation. So I started into translation and just even when we were still when I was still in language study, that was my my heart was to be involved in translation. What challenged me to be involved in Bible translation and church planning was that the Word of God is what's changing my life. Mm-hmm. And if they don't have the Word of God, how could their lives be changed? So just felt like that needed to be a part of whatever ministry I joined and what organization was doing that, then that's who I was looking for. Mm-hmm. So here all these years later, the Lord allowed that to be a part of my ministry. And, you know, it's one of those where you decide, am I going to hold on to this or am I going to let it go? Can the Lord still use me here if, if that isn't what he has for me? But in his yeah wisdom, he decided that was could be part of what he had me there for. So I started into translation. And then another couple within that next year, another couple joined the work. And he and his wife and three kids moved in. And then the single lady had really been struggling with language learning. She had put more time in than probably any of us Mm -hmm. and just got to a place where she wasn't making any progress. And she loved living in the village. And I I mean, I don't imagine at that point she loved language learning, but it just got to to the point where um, after a year of not making any progress, at some point you reevaluate and it was really neat to see how the Lord, her church, her sending church, um, us as a team saw the, this reality, our leadership. Everybody was of the same mind that probably what was best for her and what was best for the work was for her to step out. And there were lots of other ministries she could be involved in that didn't involve learning a hard, unwritten language. Right. And so um, <clears throat> at that point... The deci- she made the ultimate. She made the final decision of what to do and stepped out of the work. So it was the two married couples and myself. So one married couple, brand new into culture and language learning. It, uh, the other coworker, he's just finished language study. So now we're pre- preparing for literacy. He and I were co-teaching the first literacy class, and uh, we actually had a couple classes going at the same time, and watching these folks look at their written language and saying, hey, this isn't anybody else's language. This isn't the national language. This is our language, written down first time. And so just even the the very first sentence in the first primer, and you didn't even start with that on the day one. You're just introducing syllables on day one. But once we had enough syllables together, so probably on day three, they're reading the sentence that says, mi ma, mi teta ma. And all it really says is, we two are going. And then the second sentence was, we two are going to the house. But here, their language was written down for the first time, even though it was, you know, two syllables, two one-syllable words, and then two one-syllable words and a two-syllable word. And yet, all together, it was the UDI written down for the first time. And they're excited and wanting to learn how to read. And uh, a lot of, I think it was seven months with with a couple breaks in there so they could continue gathering food and not be hungry while they're 
trying to learn how to read and write. And so seven months later, we had our first graduation of a literacy class. Graduated 19. Now, not all of them were reading well. Uh, one guy, he just got a certificate that said he attended because he still wasn't quite reading by the end of that course, and we felt like he would need to go through again. But he did get a certificate because he finished the course. Right. And this guy was one that, in terms of relationships in the village, they adopted us into family lines, so he would be a brother to me. Mm-hmm. But he's very quiet, very soft-spoken, and probably took him a couple years before he even said hi to me, much less any kind of conversation or interaction. And so at the graduation, after he got a certificate at the end of the ceremony and the whole celebration, he came up and bear hugged me, which is not cultural. They don't do that at all. And so here's this guy that it took him forever to even say hi, just wrapping me in a huge hug because he was so excited that we had been teaching literacy, teaching him how to read and write, and that he got the certificate. And um, anyway, just a a picture of the excitement they had Mm -hmm. of being able to read and write their own language and understanding that at that level still, they're very slow readers. They, it wouldn't match up to what we think of what I could read at the speed, you know, because I've been reading for a long time. So for them, but after seven months, they were able to read their language and understand, comprehend what the story was about. And so pretty exciting stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so and you're kind of sitting there like, yeah, obviously a very involved part of it, but you're seeing this unfold where you don't know how they're going to respond. Yeah. Are they going to hate to read? Is yeah. this going to be exciting? Well, it's so interesting to me that I hear lots of conversations where people are, are will say, they're an oral culture. Don't insist on them becoming a reading or a written culture. And yet every single person in our village wants to know how to read and write. And when we announced that, okay, here's when the first class is starting, we're trying to put together who were the, initially we were thinking 10 people in the class, 12 people in the class, who are the first 12 going to enter in that? And there's lots of cultural implications, and it's not as simple as these are the 10 I think should go in. You're trying to work with the community and decide who, and there's cultural implications as far as who goes in that first class. But basically, every single adult and every teenager wanted to be in that first class. And so it did, it was this bit of uh, compromising and talking through and promising that if you didn't make the first class, you'd be in the next class. Because every single one of them, uh, every single one of them wanted to be reading and writing. So they're not wanting to stay in oral culture. So how can I impose that nope sorry you've got to stay in oral culture because that's what you are no they're demanding that we teach them how to read and write i mean that's one of the promises you make moving in but at the same time they are it's a promise they want yes they want us to fulfill and even at the graduation you had some of the guys in the community that are leaders that weren't in the first class that are saying okay hey you guys that went through that class don't forget about us because we had teachers come out of the first class that we're going to be co-teaching with us in the next class and their peers are all telling them make sure you don't forget don't hold this knowledge for yourself you've got to share it with us and teach us how to read and write so that's awesome so they you've got some readers yes um what's next well all the time that we were teaching literacy and you're working towards us i'm still working on bible translation my coworker was writing lessons so because we teach chronologically, we're not just going to stand up with John 3.16. They need a little bit more background than that. So we start within the beginning God and work through the Old Testament and all through to the birth, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Christ. So that's what we were working towards. So he's writing lessons. We're checking them for comprehension to make sure they really communicate, not just how we think it should communicate, but that the people... It's natural, and it's very clear for them. Mm -hmm. So once we got done all the lessons, enough of the lessons were written that we felt like we could start. Um, That's, yeah, that was the next thing you're not doing. I mean, I still was working on translation while we were, while he was teaching, but we're not starting another literacy class. We're wanting the people to have time that 
they can come every morning and hear the lesson and then they have to go off and find food, right? So mm-hmm. if you're trying to offer a literacy class at the same time, they're just going to be hungry and it's all going to fall apart. Right. So we started, you know, in the first day of class, it's even introducing geography, helping them see beyond their own little world to where does the gospel start showing up? Where is Israel? Where are all these countries taking place? All of that sort of thing. And then just that the word of God is the truth, that it's the thing that we uh, stand on, so to speak, and that everything that we're telling them is based on what God said happened and who he is. And that, so you're starting out with that. And then you go to, then you start with Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God, and you start establishing his character through creation. Uh, The fact that he's sovereign and that he's all powerful, that he's good, that he created things really for our benefit, that he didn't need the earth. He didn't need water, he didn't need food, all these things, but even introducing them to the fact that he knew he was going to create man, he knew that man would need these things, and those were even reflections of his love for man, that he would provide all the things that we would need, and in such creativity and variety and things like that. So you start there, and every day, five days a week, we would, my coworker would teach. Wow, so they came every day? Every day. Every morning. Yes, and he would teach the lesson. He would do the teaching. I would read the scripture portions and then ask review questions just to give him a break because he was the only teacher. And in some way to try and model team teaching. Right. Because eventually once the other couple, once he was done with language and culture study, he would be co-teaching with the one that was teaching at the moment. So um, working through that and, wow, doing dramas to just, express some of the things that visual pictures of some of the stories that are happening so you get to abraham offering isaac on the altar and so you're acting that out and so the teacher's got his son out there and you know and you're just acting it out that they can get visual picture of Mm. what you're what you're teaching on what they're hearing being read so eventually eventually you get to a big (laughs) moment where yes Oh, my. So what was that like? Well, it's so crazy because you've been teaching for about four months, and you, we would meet every morning at 7 a.m. to pray together, primarily the two guys and myself. And so we would get together, pray together, and then at 8 o'clock, generally, the, the lesson would start. So when we got to that last, this morning that we knew the death, burial, and resurrection was that day, that was the lesson for the day. And... You, Honestly, the three of us got together and we could hardly pray. Hmm. You're just thinking that after six years of language and culture study, of learning who they are, building these relationships, literacy, lesson writing, translation, all of this, and in the meantime having watched some of your friends die Hmm. before they heard the gospel, that now you're on the cusp of watching a church born. And this is what you've been working towards, but yet that reality is really emotional. Mm. <laughs> and so it was a, just a, an incredible morning of, wow, within a couple hours, we could actually be talking to believers in this community. And pretty powerful, and yet what an incredible privilege to think you get to watch this mm. and be right there as it's happening. Right. So we did that, and then we went out and, you know, teaching and drama and reading and and even just taking your, it takes you back to the day that you understood truth and your own salvation and what it cost for your salvation. So in all of that, it, it's this huge thing of, you know, we're feeling emotional. And I just remember even asking the Lord to make sure that I didn't cry when I was reading because I'm, it's not like you're in a quiet room just reading, right? You're trying to talk over kids that are crying and chickens and dogs. And so there were very often, I felt like I was kind of screaming at the top of my lungs get these words just out to get there. these words out where they could hear them. And so if I'm crying, I'm certainly not going to be able to do that. So just asking the Lord to, to take care of that aspect of it as well. And 
So the people are sitting around, and honestly, I would say the mood just became more and more somber. But, I mean, you're talking about a trial. You're talking about crucifixion and then death. And death of, of this one that they had, they'd come to like and care for and saw that he was so good in healing people and all of these things. And the crowd just got more and more quiet and more and more somber. Uh, the Udi have no problem expressing anger. Uh, they have no problem. I mean, if someone dies, then grieving and mourning, there's nothing quite like it. But to just be, if you're feeling shame or to have tears running down your face for any other reason, they're, they're, you just, you don't do that. So more and more heads were bowed, like looking at the ground and not interacting with us as they had been through all the other lessons. And my one friend was sitting next to me and she would interact with me throughout every lesson and commenting and just interacting with the story every time. And she wouldn't even look at me. She was really quiet and um, had her head down too. And so get through the whole lesson and then Christ is risen, the resurrection. Mm. You're thinking they're going to be super excited and that should be changing the whole tenor of the meeting and still somber, still very quiet. Mm. And at the end, then my coworker said, Hey, is there, are there any questions, any comments, anything anybody wants to say? And nothing, complete silence. And you're looking around thinking, did we miscommunicate? Did we, what, 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 what just happened? Because mm-hmm. nobody seems to have understood. And individually, one by one, they started getting up and very quietly, still with their heads down, walking back to their houses. And we're sitting there looking at each other going, I I don't know what just happened, but somehow we didn't communicate this clearly. Or that's what we thought. Right. So we'd already intended to talk with people individually and just find out, hey, what did you think? What, What do you... So we would understand what they really believed. And so I went to my friend that was sitting next to me and, and asked her, Hey, so what did you think? And are you still in Satan's family? Are you part of God's family? Or, you know, what, what do you think about what you heard today? And she started talking with tears running down her face. And she said, man, I, I really think I'm in God's family because Jesus paid for my sin on the cross. <laughs> like, Oh, hallelujah. You know? So she yes. really did get it. And, mm-hmm. And you talk to another guy and, and one after one, one after another, as we talked with them, they really did get it. But what we kept hearing was this idea that they couldn't get over the fact that the son of God would be willing to go through such pain to pay for their sin. So they were feeling the weight of their sin mm. and needed to feel that first before they could rejoice in the fact that he had paid for all of it. And so that day, I, I mean... Our people group is a small people group. So there were about, I would say, 30 to 35 adults coming every day. And pretty much all of the ones that were there through all of the lessons uh, gave clear testimony of understanding and that they had believed in what Christ did for them. And there's a couple of ladies, a couple of teen girls that I say 30 to 35 understood because at that age bracket, they're kind of like every teenager or every 12 year old, 13 year old, and that you ask them a question and they giggle and they are, you know, are shy and don't know what to say. And so there's a couple in there that I feel like they did understand, but weren't able to express what they understood. So, I, I mean, probably they did understand, but until they can clearly communicate what they understand, you want to keep talking with them. I don't know. And I want to keep talking with them to give them opportunity to understand. So Mm. yeah, pretty powerful day, pretty emotional day. Then you're on this other high of, wow, cannot believe that, you know, they, they did understand Mm. and seeing this small church born and now the real work starts because now you discipleship and helping them understand who they are in Christ, their identity and, what does it mean to walk in the spirit? What does it mean to um, enjoy that relationship that they now have with Christ that they never had before? Now the real work starts. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people would say, great. Yeah, you're done, right? Bags, we're done. <laughs> 
But oh. you, you say now the real work starts because yes. your your end goal is to see a mature church. Yeah. Without missionaries needing to be there. Exactly. And ju- and just that, you know, is it's not just about evangelism, right? It is about discipleship. And seeing these believers that start out and they are excited about what they understand, but it's not like you presented this truth in a vacuum. They have customs, they have beliefs uh, with their animistic background that as they grow, they're going to have to confront some of those ancestral stories and those beliefs they've held for years that, okay, am I going to walk in truth and even what is the truth and how do I apply it? Or do I keep walking in what is my default pattern and my default knowledge? Mm -hmm. So now you're having to help them discern and read the word and apply it to their lives. And that takes lots of discipleship, living alongside them, modeling what that looks like and helping them apply truth, teaching them what that truth is, and then helping them apply it in every everyday life situations. And like, here we are on a podcast. And so in, in the West, we have opportunity, we have commentaries, we have podcasts, we have uh, Christian television, Christian radio, we have all of these means that we can continue to learn and be discipled by other people. But the people sitting in the middle of the jungle are saying, okay, you are our podcast. You are our model. So when I want to learn more about Christ, I look at you. Mm. I listen to you. So if there's nobody there, really the maturity is only going to happen as we're discipling and able to Mm. walk with them and help them process. Okay. Now, you know, this situation comes up now. What, what did we talk about on Sunday or what did we talk about when we were studying the book of Ephesians? How does, that what does the Lord say about this particular issue and helping them not only understand the gospel, but grow so that eventually they're going to be the elders. They're going to be the deacons of the church. They're going to be the ones that are sharing the gospel and discipling others. But you're going to have to do that yourself with this infant church to see them come to maturity and model all of what that discipleship looks like and teach them how to teach. So much yeah. <laughs> Responsibility. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Praise the Lord. He doesn't ask us to do it in our own strength, right. that he is right there with us and that we have his word right in our own language to be right. able to understand it and apply it to our own lives and then share that with them. So there is that sort of six year chunk of work to see the yeah. gospel and then the real work that you yeah. talked about. <laughs> Obviously, so much is happening. You're translating all along the way. Exactly. You're rubbing shoulders, discipling, in a mm-hmm. sense, all along the way. Um, what were some of the hardest challenges for you as in that journey, as you look mm-hmm. back, that you see, wow, this is an incredible challenge, but I see how the Lord taught me something, or mm-hmm. you have a lesson to pass on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's funny because I I look back over, even back when I was in training, I was in Bible school preparing for all this, and I felt like the, the lesson the Lord kept sort of harping on was patient endurance. And I thought many times, I think we've covered that topic. Could we move to a new one? And he would hit it hard again, and I thought, what in the world? And yet, as I look at there's been so much of learning what it means to wait on the Lord mm-hmm. and that really he wants us to do that. And there's a, a passage in Isaiah that talks about how no eye has he, no eye has seen, no ear has heard of a God like this who works for those who wait on him. And I, I just love that picture of he's waiting really for me to wait mm-hmm. on him. And if I would wait on him, he'd, work for me happily and he's looking for my dependence he's looking for me to to wait on him and so over the years I've seen coming at you know out of the training and how much more do I really need to learn about patient endurance and as I stepped into this work and watching co-workers join the work and then leave um the newest couple that had joined eventually they left and didn't return Mm -hmm. 
Then the couple I started the work with, that last remaining couple, they left and didn't return. So by 2013, I was the only team member in a country where living in the middle of the jungle as the only white person anywhere around as a single woman is not a, a safe place to be. Right. So looking at that and realizing over the years, all these things about patient endurance, can I trust him to be enough when it, my odds and the things or the circumstances around me don't look great? Mm. Who do I really believe him to be? I say that he's sovereign, but does my life reflect that I believe that? I say that he's good, but are those just words on my lips? Or does my life reflect that I really believe that, that that's the truth I own? And that people would look at me and say, she obviously thinks he's in control. Right. She must think he's good. She must think he's faithful and is counting on that. And so all of these things... I would say getting to that place where I had no co-workers and I'm seeing this infant church that still needs so much teaching. They had had the gospel. They'd had lessons about the assurance of salvation. We taught through Acts. So they understood the church and the identity and how the gospel got out of Jerusalem and things like that and baptism and communion and those sorts of things and the first eight chapters of Romans. So a bit of what it means to walk in the spirit, but still not enough uh, modeling, not enough discipleship in that, not enough teaching on all of that to where they really knew what to do with it without mm -hmm. us in there. So looking at this infant church and in such great need of more feeding and more discipling, that was, I think, really the hardest place in mm -hmm. all of the work because I couldn't be in there doing it on my own and just seeing what the need was there. And yet all the things that the Lord had been teaching me about patient endurance, about who he really is and who do I believe he really is, that when it came to that place, there was no doubt in my mind that he would be faithful. And there was no doubt that he would provide other coworkers because he wasn't finished with the Wabaku church, with the Udi church. It's still was too young to be standing on its own. And so there was never a question in my mind that I couldn't trust him to provide the means to see this church come to maturity. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I look back at it now and think, how could you not have even questioned that ever? But I just take that to the faithfulness of God mm -hmm. in that he had woven lessons into my life. He had woven hard things previously where I'd seen his faithfulness and seen him come through that when it came to that place, there was a history there mm. of his faithfulness of who he is that, okay, I have nothing else to cling to, but him, but, but that's enough. Mm. And watching him provide ways to infuse truth and to, um, interact with the people at different times. I stayed in, I was in town and I would bring guys out to help me with translation and have opportunity to speak into their lives. Later on, a couple that was getting ready to retire from the field moved into the village with me for four months just so I could be there and translating and discipling and helping with literacy, different things. And I mean, I kept asking the wife, like, are you bored? Are you doing okay? And she's like, don't you worry about me. I'm reading books that I've had on my list to read forever. I'm doing fine. She was very happy to be there. And what servants of the Lord that really they would move into a hard place to live that was super hot and humid and away from the grandkids that they were taking care of previously. All of that just so that I could be in there and see this church get a little bit more encouragement and discipleship mm. and food yeah. while they could. So, yeah, that was the hard thing. And just again, man, I've just seen God be so faithful. And that's who he says he is. And we see that throughout scripture. But at some point, I have to let him be. Right? Mm -hmm. I have to choose to believe that he is faithful and patiently endure until he can bring about the solution or bring around the next thing that he's trying to bring about. But it doesn't, it rarely happens in my timing, Right. but it does happen because he's good and yeah. faithful and faithful to, to his church, to his kids. That would be hard though, to see that baby church there yeah. and 
not getting food that they need, right? Think of yeah. a, the picture, literally a baby that's needing nutrition exactly every three and a half hours. Yes. <laughs> or, yeah. Or four or whatever. And yeah, to, to not be able to be there for that, yeah. that would be very difficult. It was interesting when, when I was in there for the four months with the one couple and our leadership, couple leadership guys came in and, you know, just helping the church understand that I would have to move out and didn't know when I'd next be in. And this was all changing. And so one of the guys and said, you know, man, what is the Lord asking you to trust him for? And, and in my mind, it's like, can I not trust him for my safety? Like, maybe that's the step of faith he's asking me to take is to just trust him with my safety and live in here in the middle of nowhere by myself. I certainly didn't feel anxious about it. We did. We had a lot of traffic on our river of people I didn't know, and that was really where the security issue was, not with the people I was working with. Right. So I was like, well, you know, surely maybe that's the the thing that the Lord is is asking me to trust Him for. And the one guy looked at me and he said, "But what if the risk? What if the thing the Lord's asking you to trust Him with is leaving them on their own?" Uh, okay, Holy Spirit, stop talking. You know? <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those, as soon as he said it, it just registered that that really was what the Lord was asking me to do, was to entrust them to him by not being in there until I had coworkers again. Mm. And to me, that was a far greater step of faith than even Staying. trusting him for my safety. Yeah. yeah. But a tough, tough... Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you can not talk to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go away and let this other guy talk. Stop yes. talking over there. The one there. who wants me to stay. Yeah. yeah. Not yeah. that I know that was... There's probably nobody that was thinking this is a wise choice movie. Yeah. Well, and, and again, you go back and look at how the Lord is faithful to... Right? Because you've got the Holy Spirit. And, and when he's saying this is what he has for you, it resonates. Mm. And the Spirit gives you a rest in that. That I don't like this at all. And I really want to fight it, but there's this sense that the Lord has just spoken truth, and this is what he's saying, not even this guy over here that I'd like to pummel for even suggesting that, you know? But really, this is the Spirit speaking to the Spirit. Hmm. Yeah. So where are we now? Hmm. With the, bring <laughs> us up to 2020. 2020. There, 2020. <laughs> the, yeah, the crazy part is that the Lord provided two new couples. So two young families moved in in 2017, and they are still in the middle of culture and language study, so still trying to grasp this language. And uh, not really sure of the timing, but hopefully within the next year, they're both done with language and culture study, and the guys can start writing lessons again, and that we can start teaching and getting literacy going again, all this. There's, it's really more kids and maybe one more class of adults currently that would need the literacy class, but want to see that happening post-literacy to see them growing and breeding faster and that comprehension increasing, all of that. And translation continues. I'm probably, technically I'm at about 46% of the New Testament done. And all of the, the Old Testament portions that we need for teaching, they're all available and fully checked and in the hands of the people. So I'm a couple of comprehension tests away from having Galatians and the book of Mark finished, and that would change the percentage. But yeah, just about God's halfway. faithfulness. Yeah, about halfway. Wow. Yeah, yeah pretty crazy. What a marathon. Yes. <laughs> this is not for the faint of heart, right? This whole ministry and... Yet, oh, I can't imagine doing anything different because you see God's faithfulness in his hand over and over again. And seeing this church come to maturity, watching even these young believers that will speak truth into your life, and you're thinking, I should be encouraging them, but instead they're challenging me with truth. Mm. And what a, yeah, what a privilege. So you're, uh, the reason I know you is from... <laughs> This workshop, yes. this course analysis that we're, we're taking here. And um, is it possible to boil the, the two weeks of training 
into a nutshell of like, what's what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> Why is discourse analysis important for a translator and a teacher going across a language barrier? Yeah. Well, we expect there to be different forms. Dog in one language, dog in another language is going to be different. But as you continue to put things together in the way that we communicate, we would say that there are these 10 things, 10 principles, that 10 areas of communication that every language handles. And so that universal principle, we need to see English is my heart language, and so how it uses those 10 things will be is very different from the way that UDI does. And if I only look up to sentence level at a language, then I don't know how they put things together on paragraph levels. There are things that we do to relate things together to show that I'm moving on to the next topic. The way we start a text, the way we end a story, looks very different from one language to another. And if I want to speak clearly, if I want to communicate naturally to the UDI so that they understand this message, I should use their patterns of how they handle these 10 things. Now, I'm not changing the message, but I'm changing it so that when I'm saying, here's the main point, I would certainly want them to understand that the death, burial, and, re death, burial, and resurrection is the main point of that lesson mm -hmm. and of this passage of, say, Mark chapter 14. I would want them to understand what the main point was. But how they mark what's the main point in a story is different from the way I would mark it and the way I would say it in English. So I need to understand how they do that in UDI so that they understand this was the main point. And so all of what we've been doing is trying to look at these each of these 10 things and look at text in the vernacular you're working in that is not English usually, right? And so look at that, and how are they handling these 10 things? So putting it in a chart that allows us to see those patterns emerging, covering those 10 things so that then later, now that I understand what those features are and what, what the signals are for how to keep track of who's doing what to whom or how to keep track of where the main point is and that this is you know, background information and this is the next event in the story or how do I convince you to do something different? There's different genres and how they handle that. If I can evaluate and analyze through their stories, natural stories they've told you, then I can understand those features and as I start translating, I'm following their patterns rather than trying to use my English patterns with UDI words. But I'm using UDI grammar patterns UDI discourse features to convey the truth in a in a form that they can hear and and understand just in the same way I would in English. Um, the way you explained it in a workshop is you can use the forms and obviously the mm -hmm. words of right. the new language when you're out and about and you're talking to people. But once you get down and you're tr you're translating, that's a whole nother story because you'll end up often if you haven't been mindful, taking the forms from your source text right, and just putting that right into the new language. Exactly. And so intuitive learners, you're out talking and you hear them telling the story of the pig hunt they went on yesterday. And then if you're intuitively, you might use the discourse features that they said in telling the story as you retell that story. But then you start looking at a written text. You look at the English or looking at the Greek or the Hebrew helps and all of that. Now you're reading a written form. And very often, if you don't know what those discourse features are, if you just knew, know them intuitively, you're not going to impose them on your translation or on your lesson because you don't, you just, you can't just sprinkle them in, you know, well, they, you know, they use this particular word or particle three times in that story so I'm just going to pick three places and put it in but there's usually it's marking it's signaling something and you could signal the exact opposite of what you wanted to so you've got to understand this their discourse features otherwise you'll you'll impose your own on their language well that's encouraging it's <laughs> even more complicated <laughs> than I thought it ever could be <laughs> Well, the crazy part, and we talk about this in the workshop, is that we're doing this all the time in our own language. It's kind of like culture. We just know when to, do, to use these things. We can't necessarily explain them. 
But between the things that we've learned over the years and what we've learned from others that have looked at discourse analysis, there are tools that we've created and that others started and we've built upon and so that you can put it in a format to see the patterns and then analyze and write about what you're seeing and then use those patterns when you get into your translation lesson writing. It is amazing that we actually get to learn so much from people who have beaten their heads against the wall <laughs> yeah. of discourse analysis, and they have discovered those mm-hmm. 10 things that, or we have, whoever right, has, right. those 10 things that we do when we talk. Um, do you have any final words, any final thoughts, lessons, or a comment you want to share with that could be someone out there who's considering missions or someone who's in the middle of language learning kind of at the front end Mm. any thoughts that you want to give them well i think i just keep always going back to the fact that he is worth it the very people that you're working among to share truth with them there are many days that they yeah if you're counting on your love for them if you're counting on uh, them deserving this truth then you're going to be home you'll be packing your bag pretty quick but if you keep going if it's all about his glory if it's all about his fame being proclaimed and that we believe that revelation says that people from now i know people from the udi language will be praising and worshiping him forever they will be there at the throne like if my focus is on him and what he deserves then I can keep trusting him for the daily grind and I don't get lost in they stole my stuff again, they broke into my house, They, the guy that was supposed to help me with translation didn't show up. I mean, come on. I'm just asking for a translation helper to translate the word of God. I'm not asking for a Lamborghini, right? I'm not asking for my own purposes, but instead of, you know, in those days, it's Lord, what are you wanting to do? But all that, all of those kind of hard days, the being away from family at holidays or special events, the uh, next bout of malaria, any of this, this, those things, he is worth it. He's worth every hard day. He's worth every moment of sickness. He's worth every beating of my head against the wall and trying to figure this verb out or whatever it is because it's really all about him and he's given us this incredible privilege to be his vessel Mm-hmm. to watch him work right before us. And if I can remain in that place of gratefulness, that I see that as a privilege to serve him in this way, to be a part of what he's doing, then I can keep going to the next day and the next day and seeing him prove his faithfulness over and over. But when I quit being grateful, then it just becomes drudgery and it becomes really easy to find a hundred reasons tomorrow to go home. And eventually one of that, one of those will be valid enough that I could pick it and mm. take off. But I just see he is worth every hard day. His glory is worth it. And he is so faithful and so good that he provides what you need. That doesn't mean there aren't days that I haven't cried my eyes out. And days when, yeah, there's a lot easier things to do. <laughs> Sometimes I think if, I mean, translation, it, it's not the easiest job you could pick in your life, right? I, I mean, I could... What's the opposite of hyperbole? Yeah, litos, right? <laughs> Lito. <That> was... <laughs> Understate for effect, right? I mean, it's not the easiest job in the world. And, you know, why did I pick that one? I could be baking cookies and it doesn't really require a lot of brain power. I could be a, you know, there are people, obviously there is, but I'm just thinking there's other do- jobs I could do that would require less brain power. And less that sense of responsibility um, of translating, yeah, the word of God from one language to another. And yet, man, I can't imagine doing anything different because Mm -hmm. of the privilege of watching people grasp truth and get excited and tears running down their face as they recognize truth and understanding the love of God. And I mean, what compares to that? So between his glory and the absolute privilege it is to watch them growing in truth and understanding Mm -hmm. going from light to dark i mean from darkness to light 
going from fearfulness to a, a rest and peace. I, yeah, I don't, I, I can't imagine anything else comparing to that. Mm. It's worth it. Do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much to you guys out there listening. He's worth every bad day. You've been listening to the Rethink Missions podcast. For more information and episodes, go to wmissions.com. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review and subscribe.